Lord, we thank you for all of the blessings that you've given us this day, those that we have recognized and those that we have not, Lord. We pray now that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you'll take these words of my mouth and turn them into the meditations of all of our hearts so that we would always be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Okay, I'm not going to hit my head on this, am I? <laughs> I'm six foot six, and everywhere I go, I have, a, I have a fear of ceiling fans. I don't think that's actually been diagnosed, but I'm very scared of low-hanging objects. I can't tell you how many times I've hit my head. I'm glad I have a little hair left to cover some of the scars. Uh, my name is Gary Beeson, and I'm a, I'm, we've planted a church, a group of us, uh, out in Cane Bay, South Carolina. Uh, if you'd like to know where that is, it's, it's east of Somerville, it's northwest of Goose Creek, and it's directly west of Monk's Corner. What I can tell you for sure is there's a Volvo plant there. <laughs> so um, we, we're a church plant, and we spent um, the first couple years in a Reformed Episcopal church. Uh, an all-African-American community, and we, we've shared all kinds of things together. We've shared worship together, and now we've, we've grown, so we've gone from about eight people uh, to about 100, and last Saturday at the diocesan convention, we were recognized as the newest church in the diocese, which means we're self-sufficient. We're relying completely on the Lord. I'm, I throw myself on the altar every week and like, please, Lord, but it's, um, <laughs> it's a wonderful thing to watch God's church grow. It's a wonderful thing to be on a mission with the Lord and to watch the church grow. And so I feel like a kid who's only played a video game his whole life about airplanes, and now I'm actually in a cockpit and I get to fly a real airplane. Because we, we don't have this. We don't have a, a lectern. We don't have a, we don't have a podium or anything. I just preach usually from a, a music stand on the floor. So this is a high honor and a great privilege to be here. Like the bulletin says, I'm married to Suze. She's stuck with me for nearly 40 years now. After you hear me preach, you'll probably all agree how in the world has she done it? Um, I'm a little ramped up on coffee. I've had a few, a few cups, and I left Somerville this morning. Uh, and so I'm, I'm normally an excitable and energetic person. And I will, um, I may pause occasionally and look at y'all, hoping for at least a head nod, a smile, a boo, or an amen. Just give me, give me, a sermon's all about, it's an interaction. It's not just something that somebody creates, and then, you know, the help of the Lord comes, and it, it requires an interface or an interaction. So, if I look confused or I look scared or whatever, smile back at me and, you know, tell me to keep going so it gets over soon. And um, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll work through this together. What I, what I, what I was thrilled to, to find out was that this was actually the first sermon, this, this particular gospel text, was the first sermon I ever preached back before I was ordained. I was at St. Paul Somerville, and I think both of the rectors were going to be out of town. And so they're like, well, who can we get? And they, they asked me. I was doing Alpha then. We were doing Alpha Live. We weren't using the tapes. And so... It was the first time I ever preached, and so I went back and I found it. I'm not using those same notes. Actually, the sermon's kind of taken on a life of its own, a life of its own. So there's, there's the longer than normal introduction you probably weren't expecting. Um, what, are, what are we worried about? What, what, are, what, are, what are most of us sitting here this morning really worried about? I asked uh, my group last night that question, and when it was quiet, just like y'all are, I said, well, I'm glad you asked. I'll, um, I'll tell you what I heard last week in conversations with friends, some of who go to church and some of who don't. Let me just give you a list, short list, of things that people like us are worrying about. Our jobs, some of us are worried about our jobs. Our kids, lots of us, grandparents, are worried about our grandkids. Our friends, or our lack of friends. We're worried about our marriages. Two people last week come to me with, troubling 
moments in their marriage. They're worried about their marriages. Some of us are particularly worried about our divorces. These things in the past that we can't seem to drop. Some people are worried about their singleness. They're worried if they're going to stay single forever. Are they going to get married? So some people are worried about that. Our future, our money. Some people are really worried about their pets. $60 billion a year, folks, is what our economy spends on pets and pet care and veterinarians. If you're a veterinarian, way to go. That was a smart move. <laughs> yeah, $60 billion. Um, we worry about traffic, construction, especially in my area. Three houses will get built in the 10 hours I'm gone today. It's incredible how many people are moving from New York, Pennsylvania, Ohio to be in Cane Bay. We're worried about the weather. We're worried about our health. We're worried. We're worried. We're worried. According to the readings this morning, though, that puts us in pretty good company. The Israelites were worried. They were delivered from slavery. They were out in the wilderness. They were headed to the promised land. And worry and worry and worry they did. Paul reminds us in Corinthians that we really have nothing to worry about if we're in Christ, he says. And that we haven't faced any problem that others haven't faced. So, it doesn't usually assuage our worries. Into this comes our gospel today, which I wish I could, I wish I had longer. Um, the words of Jesus in the gospel of John are the most in terms of quantity that we get in all the New Testament. If you look at the gospel of John, if, you're, if you have a red letter Bible, that's, that's the Bibles that record Jesus' words in red letters. Well, in the gospel of Luke, in these three chapters, um, 11, 12, and 13, we have the second most accumulation of Jesus's words. So Jesus, in these three chapters of Luke, is doing a great deal of talking. Doing a great deal of talking. And getting us to this place in our gospel today, what Jesus has been doing essentially is giving everyone that'll listen as he heals people, as he feeds people, as he brings the presence of the Messiah into their community, he pauses and he's starting to give them lists of do's and don'ts. He's starting to talk to them about the Christian life. And I'm going to get to that at the back end of this. But he gets to this kind of crescendo in, in Luke, in this chapter that we're in. And it's about two things. And we heard the words uh, twice in the, in the gospel reading that Kay read this morning. <laughs> the two words that he's driving home are the same words, no surprise, brothers and sisters, that the law talks about, that the prophets talked about. Remember those crazy men? Lesser and greater prophets. It has nothing to do with their height. It is the size of the books of the Bible. These prophets, generation after generation, telling the people of Israel, don't take any other idols but God. Don't let anything take the place of God in your life. Take care of widows and orphans. The prophets essentially say the same things over and over and over again. But the main message, it was the message of Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. It was the thing that got John killed, by the way. John the Baptist... Um, walked around the walls of the castle and yelled at the king about this wife that he had taken. You see, the king had taken his brother's wife and was now, according to John and according to the law, living in a state of adultery. And so imagine having somebody, I'll use myself, I'd marry my brother's wife or whatever, I have somebody walking around my house 24 hours a day, occasionally over his shoulder going, adulterer! I'm sure the neighbors would look. They'd be like, who? So John the Baptist, but his message was not that. His message was, Repent. It's the third Sunday of Lent, so I can lean into that word. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is near and believe the good news. Our worrying 
the Israelites worrying seems to be connected to some misunderstanding of the way the world works. It seems to be that we and them don't actually understand how the world works. So that's what brings us to this really interesting place in this gospel where imagine Jesus now for a couple weeks has been walking and talking and healing and people are watching the Messiah in action whether they know he's the Messiah or not. And he stops and he pauses and he sets down, I imagine. Somebody probably brings him something to drink. And the first words out of the crowd's mouth when the dust settles is, Jesus, did you see the news today? Did you see Fox News, CNN, whatever you watch? Did you see the news? And I'm sure Jesus looked up. You know, Jesus, what, what the news reported today was that um, there was this tower. There's a tower on the other side of town. And these innocent people, these, these guys that were just minding their own business, making bricks and building this tower, the thing fell over on them and crushed them and killed them. Innocent people got killed, Jesus. Oh, and did you hear the worst? The king actually met Galileans from your hometown, Jesus, and he killed them. He slaughtered them on the steps of the synagogue, and then he took their blood, and he mixed it with the animal blood, and he brought it into the temple. Desecration, Jesus. Did you see that? Could you imagine how worried and anxious they were? This is first century Palestine. You know, Twitter this week, again, fake news or not, reported that our country, our citizens, we are the 19th most satisfied people in the world, which means to me that there are 18 other countries full of citizens who believe their lives are better, and they probably worry less. Now, some of these countries are undeveloped. They don't have flat screens in every bedroom of their house and in their beach house. They don't have thermometers on every wall to change the temperature. They don't have supermarkets within walking distance. And these people are still somehow more satisfied and less worried than we are. So imagine that crowd again, gathered around Jesus with these worldly worries. And I imagine what Jesus wants to say to them is, yeah, yeah, that's terrible. That's terrible. Think in something in our modern terms. Think of the two airplanes that have gone down lately. Those two, those two Boeing airplanes. I live in a Boeing community. And so everybody's talking about what went wrong. Did you see what happened? Those innocent people, 200 on each plane, who got on the plane, never thinking for a moment that this was going to be their last plane flight. Although I have a terrible fear of flying, and I think that every time I get on the plane. But they, they, they boarded the plane, and, and that plane went down, and innocent people were killed. Or how about the New Zealand shooting? I wish Jesus was here. I could be like that. How about the New Zealand shooting, Jesus? 49 people in a house of worship, not a Christian house of worship, but minding their own business, get slaughtered by somebody? Or I'll use an example that's real close to home. How about last summer? A 17-year-old young man from Columbia who had served at Camp St. Christopher for a, a great deal of his life. His name was Jack. He jumped off a dock. He jumped off a friend of mine's dock, which I ended up discovering after about 48 hours. And he did a flip. And he, and he came up and said, wow, that hurt. And he went back under the water and he died. And I'm sure his parents from Columbia, whose father's a priest, sent him off to camp, never imagining that this beautiful, innocent, perfect child would have his life taken from him in a freak accident on a dock. So they're standing there, and they're asking the question that every last one of us has asked. I asked it when my son was born, and he was terminally ill. At least that was the diagnosis at the time. I sat there in the ICU and screamed at God, why me? Why is this happening to me? It's the Jewish way of thinking. Remember the story about the man who was born blind? And a few people lean into Jesus and they're like, okay, who sinned so this guy got born blind? That's not Christian thinking. That, that's, that's 
other, that's, that's karma. If I do something good, then something good happens, and if I do something bad, something bad happens. No, no, no. What Jesus wants to say to those folks gathered around there is, hey, folks, bad things happen to good people. Amen? Amen. And here's another one. And good people do bad things, don't they? I'm reading a book right now called The Emergence of Sin, written by a guy named Matthew Crossman. And he says there are three dimensions to sin. So if you don't remember anything else except the parable at the end, which I love, remember this. Three dimensions of sin. The first is the things that we do. The mistakes that we make, we call that sin. I fudged on my tax return, sin. I lied to my wife, sin. So things we do. The second is we seem to be in a primordial soup of sin that we can't extract ourselves from. Women know this better than men because women have been the receivers of misused power in our culture. And it's not just our culture, it's around the world. So women know what it feels like to have misused power placed on them. One of my favorite rock bands is a band called Aerosmith. And they sang a song, I know somebody's like, Aerosmith, he brought that up? And my favorite song by them is a song called Living on the Edge. Living on the Edge, and I won't, I'll sing the first line, uh, okay. Um, it starts off, there's something, I'll sing it. There's something wrong in the world today. I don't know what it is. Something's going wrong. The writer of that song is talking about this primordial second dimension of sin. Something's chafing us and bothering us, isn't it? Can't always name it, but something's irritating us. That's the second dimension. And the third dimension, which I actually like the most because it lets me off the hook, is that there's this cosmic tyrant. There's some personified being that is thwarting my free will occasionally, or your free will. Paul says it like this in one of his letters. Why do I do those things? Men, men, listen to me. All the guys in the room, listen to me. Why do we do those things we don't want to do? And why don't we do those things we want to do? It's sin. It's sin, and that's what Jesus wants to tell this crowd. Hey, folks, you're living in, you're part of the problem, and you're on the receiving end of sin. Bad things happen to good people. Good people do bad things, and there's this thing that seems to be operating now, not forever. That's why we say Christ is risen, Christ will come again. One day, this primordial evil will all be gone. But at this moment, Jesus is standing with the crowd saying, that's just kind of the way it is. That's just kind of the way it is. So in, into, this, into this understanding of, into Jesus' understanding of the way the world goes, he hears their major concerns. He listens to their worries. And what I imagine he wants to say before he tells the parable is, it's all a product of your misplaced affection. You have given things the place of affection that they're not due. You, you, have, you have given cars and lawns and jobs and money and all kinds of things the place that only God should have. It's what we heard in Exodus. You have, you have misplaced your affection. And because of that, sin is running rampant. And for most of us, our mortality is clicking in the back of our head. We hear the egg timer. We're running out of time here on this earth. It's, it's a, the biggest fear of all, I think, for most of us in this culture, is that we won't live forever. We try everything we can to fight back aging. One of my favorite stories is the one about Walter Payton. He was the running back for the Chicago Bears and a very outspoken Christian. Well, he found out he had liver cancer, which is one of those very aggressive cancers, and he didn't have long to live. And so Christianity Today or someone interviewed Walter before he died. And one of the questions the interviewer asked to Walter was, Mr. Payton, are you, are you afraid to die? 
Now think about this. This is a man who ran 16,000 yards with people bigger than me hanging on him and hitting him and trying to stop him. I mean, he should have been fearless, right? And he looked right at the interviewer and he said, I'll never forget this. He said, yeah, I'm afraid to die. And the interviewer went, you know, he took him aback. He thought, of all people, this Christian man, he would have certainly said, no, I'm ready to go meet my Lord. And the guy said, well, why? And Walter said, I've never died before. <laughs> so he, he's afraid. He's worried. He's afraid and he's worried. And Jesus knows that we're afraid and we're worried primarily because we've made ourselves the center of the universe. And there he is, the king of the universe, standing in their midst. And what they want to talk about is people who've died and what he wants to say to them is, death is not the worst thing. Hear me, brothers and sisters. Hear me. Dying. And this, if you've lost somebody recently, this is going to make you a little... Death is not the worst thing, Jesus wants to tell us. Dying without knowing Jesus is the worst thing. To die without knowing Jesus, it's done. Um, C.S. Lewis in The Great Divorce, one of my favorite Lewis books, he talks about this. And, and to die and not know Jesus is just to simply turn and walk into the darkness and walk into eternity. And to live in homes, Lewis says, that over time get further and further and further separated from people. To die and know Jesus is just the beginning. So imagine, there he is, sitting in their midst. You know he wants to go, hey folks, I'm right here. The solution to all your worries is right here. Yes, it's horrible. We hate it when people die. Yes, we as followers of Jesus, we grieve. We grieve with our brothers and sisters. They grieve with us when we die, when people die. I'm not, I'm not mitigating or diminishing that one bit. But don't forget, to die without knowing Jesus is the worst thing. So then he gets to this parable. And this is not one of those flashy parables. This isn't the sower who went out to sow. The one the bishop did at the convention was great. This isn't... Um, this isn't the, the guy who has the wedding and nobody comes. This is just this simple little parable at the end of this long series of three chapters of Jesus talking about repentance and fruit, repentance and fruit. Have your mind changed. Quit thinking the world revolves around you. Recognize it revolves around me and let me be Lord of your life. That's the message he's been banging for two and a half chapters. Repent and bear fruit. And then he tells this beautiful parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. That's God the Father. The vineyard is the earth. And he went to look for fruit on it. Apparently, we were created to bear fruit when we are in God's will. Uh, a, a Christian life has three dimensions. It looks forward, forgetting what lies behind. A Christian life always looks forward, knowing that God's the only person who can handle what happened in the past. It looks upward. It's always got its eyes on its creator and maker, God. And when it does that, it bears fruit and glorifies God. We talk different. We sound different. We drive differently. We react differently. We give differently. We're peculiar people who follow Jesus. Embrace it. The culture, I'm telling you, I moved into a neighborhood, the neighborhood of the future. There are 16 houses, eight on one side, eight on the other of my block. My wife and I are the only regular church attenders. The neighborhood of the future, nobody's going to church. I tell you what does work, though, is being peculiar. I'm the weirdest guy in the neighborhood. <laughs> everybody, I got a little dog everybody knows. I borrowed every tool, house goods, everything I can from these people. And they're like, what, who are you? Um, being a Christian, if we embrace our peculiarity, is one of the most whimsical, attractive things to the rest of the world. It really is. We, we, bear, we bear some kind of strange light and it glorifies God. We don't have to try real hard. Just go next door and go, can I use your weed eater? 
And they're like, you don't have a weed eater? Because every American's got at least two, right? I'm like, no, no, I gave them all away when I went to seminary. Or I gave them all away when the guy down the street needed one. You what? You did what? So anyway, um, yeah, that's the life of a Christian. Forward, upward, and glorifying God. So, wow, I'm getting way off subject. Um, <laughs> don't forget, don't forget, a Christian life bears fruit. We bear fruit. You can't help it. Because you're going to see what happens if you don't bear fruit, if you're not actually in Christ. Um, but he, he went to this tree and he didn't find any fruit. So he said to the man, this is Jesus, who took care of the vineyard, who takes care of the earth, Jesus, for three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Remember, Jesus' ministry from age 30 to 33 was how many years? A little louder than that. Okay, I said last night when I preached this little piece, I said, yeah, and remember, Jesus was alive for three years. And it was dead. I said, that's the stupidest thing I've ever said. Jesus was alive for 33 years. Well, in the back of the church, my parish administrator, when I said, that's the stupidest thing I've ever said, she went, no, it's not. <laughs> as clear as can be. I, I listened to the recording. I was like, oh, my gosh, there's Chris. Yeah, Jesus was 33 years old, not three years old. So the three years there, those are the three years that, that reflect his ministry. Um, cut it down if it, why should it use of the soil? Sir, Jesus looking at the Father, leave it alone for one more year. I'll dig around it, I'll fertilize it, or as Kay read, I'll pour manure on it. And if it bears fruit next year, no, manure is key. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. If you're a person sitting here who's accepting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, this is one of the most beautiful parables. You'll never forget it when I tell you something about it. If you're a person who's on the fence, or if you're a person who says, yeah, I go to church a lot, and I believe... Jesus is God's son, but he's not become Lord of your life, then you're going to love this parable too. Because it tells a very important story about the character and nature of God. And that is, he's patient. He's patient. Grandparents who are very worried about some of your grandchildren, who are living lives that you never imagined they would live, or parents who are somewhat worried about your children, or spouses, or friends. If you've got people in your life that you're worried haven't met Jesus Christ, haven't received him into their heart, this is good news because the Father is patient. The Father is patient. The best news of all, this is what's going to make your heart stir, is that Jesus is going to do everything it takes to bring those people to the Father. Now listen. Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year. We have no idea how long a year is in God's economy, do we? It says somewhere else in Scripture, a year is like a thousand years. A day is like a thousand years. I'll dig around how many of you have worked in the garden and you forgot your gloves and then you get dirt under your nails even though you've had that uh, pedicure? Yeah. And, and you have to go inside and you have to actually scrub the dirt out of your nails and it stays on your hands for a couple days? Imagine Jesus bending down. Imagine him in the upper room when he bent down to wash his disciples' feet. But imagine him tenderly bending down to the feet of us and everyone and actually working the soil with his hands until it stains his hands. And then he's going to fertilize it. Or as Kay read, he's going to put manure on it. Now, any farmers here? We got any farmers? One? Okay, thank you. Manure is made up of feces. You didn't think you'd hear that word today, did you? In church. Manure is made up of excrement. We have doctors and nurses here. They'll amen that. It's made up primarily of excrement. Excrement are dead cells in the animal. So if it's cow manure, horse manure, or human manure, it's the dead cells in our body that our kidneys and everything have worked on, and now we're getting them outside of our bodies. What is the biggest component of a cell in a human body? Blood. Listen again. I'll dig around it. I'll bring my life into their life, and I'll cover them with my blood. 
I'll cover them with my blood. And you know what? I bet it bears fruit. Because people who understand they've been forgiven, people who've had that Thomas moment, people who recognize, yes, sin exists in the world, yes, sins happen to me, and yes, I've committed sin, who've gotten sensible with themselves and said, you know what, I am a sinner. The first thing we usually hear when we're truly repentant is the voice of the Lord saying, I know and I forgive you. And then we're received into his arms. It's that Thomas moment. Remember Thomas? He was the one disciple that wasn't there when Jesus comes back after the resurrection. And then a week later, they're all gathered and the guys I imagine are like, oh, Thomas, watch this. Because Jesus comes through the wall the second time. And there's Thomas, the one who said, unless I touch the nail holes, unless I put my hand in the side. And so he's sitting there and I'm sure John, whoever's like, here he comes. And Jesus walks in the room and Jesus doesn't condemn him, does he? He doesn't go, Thomas, get up here and walk up. Come here. He just says, Thomas. He says his name, which is, by the way, what we're going to hear the moment we stop breathing here and we take our first breath in eternity. God's not going to stand there with a ledger card and say, oh, so glad you're here. Let's know. He's just going to say our name. He's just going to say Ken or Kay or Charles or Rebecca. He's going to say our name. And so that's what he does when he walks through the wall. He goes, Thomas. And Thomas just golfs and goes, my Lord and my God. He's having a Jesus moment. If you've had a Jesus moment, you know that we're washed in the blood of the Lamb. Amen? You understand the great exchange. You understand the great exchange. So that's the message on the third week of Lent. It's the message we need to hear every day. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is near and believe. And it's also the message of eternity. It's the message that Jesus and the Father have been talking about, have been working on, and have been, have been carrying out day after day after day. It's great news, brothers and sisters. It's great news. We're covered in his blood. Amen.